0: I'm Daniel Scarponato. My friends call me Scarp. I've been blessed to have a really great career in journalism, media, and politics. Along the way, I've become friends, and I would say frenemies, with some of the most interesting people. Some of them are famous, some infamous, and some completely unknown. We're turning on the mics now to discuss people, politics, and well, pretty much everything else. So please, sit back, relax, grab a drink, jump on the treadmill, whatever. Please enjoy the show. Thanks for joining us. We are very lucky to have with us today a good friend and a very prominent member of our business community and a longtime public servant, Steve Shukri. Steve, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having
1: me, and I'm excited by this. Really, congratulations to
0: you. Well, thank you, and really appreciate you being here. And you know, for those of you out there who don't know uh, Steve Shukri's full background, currently president and CEO of the Arizona Restaurant Association. How long have you been there?
1: Uh, 20 years this last month. Yeah, 20 years.
0: And then for about a decade was on the the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, first elected in 2012 and and stepped down uh, in October of last year? Uh, November. November. Yeah. So I think folks are interested to know, what have you been up to since stepping Out of public service.
1: Well, I'll I'll tell you, you you can never step too far away, right? Right. You always seem to be uh, somewhat tethered to to public office once you've served. And, of course, I've always enjoyed politics and being native-born here. Love Arizona. Uh, so I've done a, a few different things. I also continue to consult for General Motors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been doing that for 21 years. Uh, as you know, my grandfather was the first licensed auto dealer in the state, so I take great pride, uh, not only in his success, but also uh, the automotive you know history that we've had as a, as a family. And then uh, I got uh, roped into investing more. Uh, in our industry, Scarp, uh, and that is the the fifteen billion dollar industry we know here in restaurants uh, in Arizona, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's been great. I'm a partner in two new restaurants going up, one in the East Valley, one in North Scottsdale. Can you tell us which one? Sure, sure. Uh, of course, I love all restaurants because I, <laughs> yeah, I have course. to be Switzerland. Uh, I love all 10,500 restaurants in the state of Arizona, but I've had the good fortune uh, to work with uh, the partnership of uh, Buck & Ryder uh, and Ingo's. Yeah, Oh, <clears throat> and so, also phenomenal. And so we're building an Ingo's in North Scottsdale uh, right off of Scottsdale Road in Mayo in front of that Sprouts. I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with it. Uh, as well as a Buck and Rider, I'm not a partner in that that specific store, uh, and then we're going uh, to build a Buck and Rider in South Gilbert uh, oh, in great. a place that uh, one of my board members, ironically, you know, the, the restaurant industry we're always known for being so incestuous, and in this case, uh, just a prominent restaurateur that many people know, and Joe Johnston, mm-hmm. uh, who created Agrotopia and Joe's Barbecue and some great great love it out there developments, yeah. yeah, in South Gilbert, he came to me and said, "We need restaurants. We're building this great uh, multi generational." family building there out and just on the outskirts of Agritopia and so i brought this restaurant concept to them as well as a few others and they said well hey since you brought it why don't you be a partner with us and so it just happened cool. very organically and uh i'm loving every minute
0: of it well that's worth the drive for people who are in central phoenix to go out there i love Agritopia and uh and buck and rider is a great place i mean i think their their fish is probably the best in town
1: it's very good. They, they know how to run a great restaurant, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to be an investor with them.
0: Well, I think that a lot of people, I think what you do sounds really fun, um, and I want to talk more about it, and I want to talk about your family roots here. But I think you know, the first thing I want to ask is, do you miss public service? Do you miss, you know you were in it for so long?
1: You know, your your former boss and I started at the relatively the same time, yeah. right? Uh, Governor Ducey, I, I'm proud to say I was his first endorsement uh, back in the day. And I wanted to, from my business background, Scarp, bring that to... To government. And, you know, as a kid that was poor in, in grade school, high school, uh, I was never a great student. And I was always told, as many people are, you know, what you couldn't do, what mm-hmm. you couldn't accomplish. And I was always kind of the person that would push back on that. And I got tired of people saying you couldn't bring a business mindset to government. And I mm-hmm. knew you could. And so in 2012, when I was elected to office, that's what we did in Maricopa County. You know, we. Uh, We're smart about bringing personnel reform where you could hire and fire at will and you didn't have to hide behind tenure. We got really smart about how we ran our jail system by putting courthouses inside the jails, right? Right. By doing teleconferencing so you didn't have flight risks of of inmates uh, going and doing nefarious things when they're supposed to be trying to go to court and go through our adjudication process. So uh, I really, really missed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and toward the end, it became so convoluted with COVID and mask mandates and whether or not uh, the President Donald Trump won or lost. And we kind of took away from that. And so to, to answer your question in a, in a very long way, I would share with you that do I miss my constituents? hundred percent. I had over 800,000 constituents. I still talk to many of them mm-hmm. uh, and I miss working with other electeds. Uh, absolutely. But, uh, you know, I just had uh, breakfast with the chief of staff of a sitting congressman. So we're very much engaged because of the industry I represent, but right. also because you don't just walk away from that many years in politics. And, and I, I think I'll get back in at some point at the right time.
0: But do you think you'd it, run? I think I'd run, yeah, Yeah,
1: absolutely, and I said that when I stepped down. I I just think that, uh, for me, uh, stepping down from the board at that time was the right thing to do. I I would tell you it was the right thing to do for me and my family, but my family disagreed. They wanted me to stay in office, (laughs) uh, which is completely a conundrum, right? The antithesis of what families typically do, but uh, for me, and seeing kind of where this political environment is right now, it was going to be my last term, it was the right decision, uh, and I don't— I have no regrets about that, fortunately. Uh, but, yeah, do you still have the fire in the belly? Do you still, can you still bring a business mindset to other forms of government? 100%. I think someday I will return uh, if that's the right thing for me and, God willing, and my family.
0: I think it was, actually, I think it was just a few days after your tenure ended that you and I had breakfast at Royal Palms. Um, I didn't know about your whole history, your family's history in this state. You talked about your, your grandfather. Um, t- tell us more about that, because it's really a cool story.
1: Well, thank you, and, and I'm blessed. Uh, you know, I'm full-blooded Lebanese without having been born in the country, which is somewhat of an oddity. Uh, my father immigrated uh, from Lebanon, uh, as did my grandfather on my mother's side. And the, the story goes, which is amazing, because I think we all are immigrants, right, in right. some shape, form, uh, and for my grandfather, uh, he was born, uh, my mother's father was born a year before statehood. In the small town called Marenzi, Arizona. Yep, I'm familiar with that. And, and in Marenzi, he was there as an infant. His his parents, my great-grandparents, were here on a visa, and they had to go back to Lebanon. So they went back to Lebanon uh, when he was about one or two. Uh, and then at the age of 13, uh, he came back to Arizona through Mexico mm-hmm. with his father. Mm-hmm. And they said to my grandfather, you're a U.S. citizen. You're welcome to come back in. But they said to my great-grandfather, you're not, and turned him away at the border uh, and so I always chuckle with my young sons, you know, complaining about their iPhone going dead, <laughs> where my grandfather at the age of 13, right, was handed $5 from his dad saying, go make the best of it. Yeah. And, and good luck. You're on your own. Yeah. And, and put a, a, his name on a card and put it around his neck and sent him off to, to Miami Globe. Uh, and he sold dry goods there door to door and did really, really well. And one day a friend of his said, hey, I'm looking for a car to buy you're out there every day my budget's fifty dollars if you see a car would you let me know and so sure enough just some days later my grandfather sees a car fifty dollars it was on the windshield and he went and found the same shoe polish put a one in front of the five and says it's fifty dollars down and a hundred dollars later sold a car that was never his wow Uh, and he went to his best friend a guy by the name of eddie basha uh, (laughs) and he said eddie i like this car business i'm going to go move down to the valley and and start and in 1928 that's what he did and his good friend Eddie Bashas said Tony I'm right behind you he sold produce uh, same yeah. same part of the town right and, and he was born in Ray Arizona so what 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 time frame would this have been then So 1928 is okay. when my grandfather went into the car business and 1932 is when Bashas was incorporated Wow uh, so, so was, it, was Eddie
0: Basha just like a just selling produce like yeah, it, yeah. he had a small business at yeah. that time Yeah
1: just the kind of, kind of I, I, don't, I don't want to speak for the Basha family but uh out, 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 out the back of a truck yeah. I, I think you know it was that kind of a thing and this is Eddie Basha senior not the Eddie yeah. Basher, yeah, right. that ran for governor but yes yeah
0: yeah wow so um now w- when did your grandfather pass away he died in uh, 1985 okay yeah. and were you pretty close with them
1: yes you know I, I had a different life growing up my father uh was brain damaged and, and mm-hmm. uh required a, a lot of medical care and and was confined to a wheelchair and so my grandfather kind of stepped in and and helped uh, which made us obviously close um, you know my dad had a tough life his dad was killed in front of him in the streets of lebanon mm. for his religion uh and they had to come here uh with uh, you know three three grown kids i shouldn't say grown kids three young kids and wow. my grandmother was pregnant and had breast cancer and had to adopt her youngest uh, out so he had a very tough life growing up uh, but as you know and I, I think it's topical to bring up history because If you don't know your history and i tell my kids this you don't if you don't respect it and understand it you don't know where you're going
0: now you had really a very unique position through covid um and you know we talk about your tenure on the board i mean talk about a pretty pretty wild couple years between the pandemic the election everything that ensued probably one of the toughest times to be in public service and you were in a unique position because as a supervisor, you had to deal with the health crisis. Maricopa County was on the front lines with the health department and obviously the impact on businesses and constituents. And then your seat as the uh, the president and CEO of the Arizona Restaurant Association. We talked a lot during that time frame. So I'm curious your thoughts on you know, post COVID the restaurant industry, because it did seem like things were going to be fundamentally different. And it's interesting talking now about all this success of the, not only the, the, uh, establishments that you're an investor in, but it, it, it feels like, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting things happening economically right now, obviously inflation, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of disposable income out there though at the same time the workforce issues so tell us what is happening within the restaurant industry right now it's
1: it's you you i think summed it up very very well and we, you know, I started this job about a year, just under a year, mm-hmm. outside of nine eleven, right? Mm-hmm. Which really was another. Yeah, I don't want to say COVID in its own, but something that the country never experienced in that in that way, at least recent, uh, from a recent history standpoint. And so I remember just kind of on the tail end of what restaurants were going through, right? When from suffering from the nine, the effects of nine eleven. And I, I will tell you that there's a lot of ups and downs. We had the, the bust of the 2008, 2009 real estate wise and right. had a lot of people leave the state, uh, which was tough for the restaurant industry, but never had I seen this industry face uh, the difficulty uh, that they did come with COVID, and and so uh, restaurateurs that are tough as nails coming in my office crying and saying, "What are we going to do?" Mm-hmm. And it was the fear of the unknown. And, and you and I uh, even understood that. And mm-hmm. we didn't agree on some things, but we trusted each other, right, right, to get through. And we came to the same conclusions. Um, and that was the biggest misnomer. And I got to tell you something that gets under my skin a bit. In that uh, there is no playbook for COVID. Uh, right. And and I think uh, our governor, Governor Ducey, did the best he could with what he knew at the time. And so the criticisms that were coming toward us uh, collectively and some of the decisions we made alongside the Ducey administration for our restaurants, um, we I think we were arm in arm and we said, we don't know what we don't know, but we're going to march forward. And I would say that the biggest, uh, I think, compliment to our industry was our customer. And the customer, some customers didn't want to see anybody. They wanted their food left outside the front door. Others still hungered for, no pun intended, that interaction, even if it's just a little bit through to-go uh, ordering. And so for from our perspective, we said, what can we do and how quickly can we do it to respond to this? Uh, and in some ways, we felt restaurants were unfairly targeted, right? Because they were getting shut down, but yet maybe other big retailers weren't. And we couldn't figure that out. But it really, at the end of the day, didn't matter because mm-hmm. right now and at that point in time, it was about survival. And so we quickly went to this to-go platform, and we used our engineering from our to- our restaurant weeks and the platform we had on our websites. And we uploaded over 700, almost 1,000 restaurants over a week period of time of restaurants throughout the state for people to do to-go ordering. Yeah. And we want to be critical of the media, and in some cases, I think we should be. But the media was our best partner in that. Daniel, in the sense that they did interview. I think I probably did more interviews in the year of 2020 than I did my entire career at the restaurant association, Mm -hmm. because they wanted to know, they wanted to make sure that restaurants and these mom and pops did not go under. Uh, And so all that being said, I think from a response standpoint, if we had to do it over again, I don't know how much I would really change because we were able to do the best we could with the tools we had at the time.
0: Right. No, I I think that's spot on in terms of, the And this is something I, I hear a lot from people, not just in the restaurant industry, are these workforce issues. But it does seem like for you all, it is a particular challenge. And what I haven't been able to quite put my finger on is where did the workers go? Because um, they've had to go somewhere. It is, mm-hmm. What is the, the challenge that you're facing? Is it wait staff? Is it culinary staff? Is it both? Um, And does the industry need to rethink the whole way you
1: approach employment in this sector? I think what COVID did is a couple things. One, it pushed people into reflection of what else can I be doing on my own time that provides that same flexibility with the same money? And we lost some of our workforce to that. Uh, We lost some of our workforce to people who have said, I don't want to find myself in the same situation. Keep in mind, our daily payroll during COVID, prior to COVID was 14 million per day. It went to 2 million in a matter of 48 hours. We laid off 80% of our workforce. And so some of our workforce said, we don't want to be subject to that kind of problem again and be out of work. So they went went back to school or went to healthcare or something else where they know they would get paid. And then some just moved out of state. Some wanted to stay on the couch and not work because they were getting unemployment, but now fast forwarding two years, um, I I think the biggest culprit to us is those members of our one-time workforce going and finding something else that's just as flexible. Now we're getting some of them back because gas prices are really high, cars are breaking down, and they didn't factor some of those things in. Uh, But it's uh, it's still a challenge. It's still a big challenge for the industry. And you have to remember, Daniel, we're growing very quickly. So we're building restaurants. And so you're going to need more and more labor. And so if there's less to pull from, it actually exacerbates the problem.
0: So we're in campaign season. A lot of people running out there. I guess the last thing I want to ask you is what wisdom would you impart? You know, what have you learned, particularly the last couple years and what advice do you have to folks out there who are looking to enter public service?
1: I think you have to know the why, about why you want to run for public office, because the scrutiny today is probably the highest it's ever been in my time in politics anyway. And you have to stay true to yourself. Um, I I think a lot of people get caught up with the notion of being in public office and that you're giving speeches and cutting ribbons. That's not really what public office is about. It's about managing and governing and no matter what job it is. So uh, you have to be willing to take the scrutiny, but you also have to know that some people aren't going to like you just plain and simple. And you have to be okay with that because Mm -hmm. I think that's that's tough on on someone's psyche. And, And that's what I've said of late that uh when in the current throws now that we're approaching a primary uh, i think a candidate's worst enemy is their psyche Uh, Mm -hmm. and if they don't have their psyche in checked uh and they let that eat them up it's it's you gotta have you gotta be comfortable in your own skin but you have to stay stay true to who you are um and if you're not then i don't think you can be successful
0: such a great point Steve Shukri, thanks for being with us. It's so good to see you and we're glad you're doing well. Well,
1: congratulations on your success and more to come. (laughs)
0: Thank you. All right. See ya. Hey there, we're back and our audience keeps growing and growing. And it's been really fun to get texts and messages from a lot of people out there who are listening. Uh, A lot of people are engaged in providing really good feedback. One thing that we've heard is that some people think the show is too short? Actually, uh, people want more, and we've really aimed to go on the brisker side here. But um, especially with the Governor Brewer interview, people said we wanted to hear more from Governor Brewer. So it's a good group, a smart group of friends, and some really fun topics. First up, returning for her second appearance is PR and communications expert. Lorna Romero Ferguson, owner of Elevate Strategies. Lorna, it's good to see you again. We didn't scare you away or result in you losing any clients.
2: No, not yet. Happy to be back, and I'm, I'm glad people want more. Give the people what they want.
0: Exactly, love it. Um, also with us is my my personal mentor, uh, the man whose shoes I've always aspired to follow <laughs> in. Barrett Marson, CEO of Marson Media, and a former podcaster himself. Barrett, I've now followed you in job after job. (laughs) Daily Star reporter, state house comms director, and now podcast host. (laughs) Um, How are you, and can we host a Copper Talk reunion here on this show at some point?
3: Well, you know, uh, one thing Copper Talk never had that you do have, is a bottle of vodka and so i am uh I, I just texted uh my podcast co-host matt morales telling him one thing we lacked was vodka and so i'm pretty happy that uh that, and, that and you if, you, if, you right. it, if you were doing the podcasting right
0: and if you, it, you it, had just imagine what christine jones really would have said <laughs> Last and definitely not least, uh, because you always need an attorney in the room, is Roy Herrera. Roy is founding partner at Herrera Ariano LLP. He's a former federal prosecutor, and of course, someone who's got a lot of opinions. Roy, hopefully, you won't regret your decision being here with us today. We'll see.
4: <laughs> you can give me more vodka. Maybe
0: <laughs> nice. Well, on that note, cheers, everybody. Everybody's got a drink here. To a good podcast. Does anybody know what uh, today is, other than the day of the week? What's for
3: all of us political people? It's just like (laughs) it's two weeks, three weeks from election day, something like that, right?
0: It's it's prime day actually. Oh,
3: Oh yeah. So, and, and, so, hold on. It's three weeks from election day, but two months from election result day, right?
0: It, oh, you're just <laughs> assuming. So,
3: I'm
4: an election lawyer. Don't say that.
0: <laughs> well, you could order some ballots maybe on Amazon. <laughs> 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 Is anything, did, have you bought anything, Lorna, on on Amazon?
2: No, I mean, well, I buy things on Amazon all the time. <laughs> I think every day I get a different package. So Prime Day is not really a, a big deal for me. I actually get overwhelmed by it. There's just so many options and things. And unless I need like a TV, which I don't right now, I'm just not really into it. But maybe but before midnight, I'll have a bunch of stuff in my cart. But I literally get Amazon packages every uh, day. Uh, it's a problem.
3: Gen X you know, this is a Gen X feeling right here, but I hate Amazon. I like to go into right. a store, try on a shirt, try on the shoes. You try clothes on? Uh, I, well, yeah, you know. <laughs> <right. laughs> store right. the store? Yeah, you know. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this doesn't fit. I guess I got to send it back and then order the next size up or down. I, I see don't you like a very similar outfit, though. So, <laughs> what do what you do <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you're looking very, like, tropical uh, well, and relaxed yeah. today. You always
3: look well, like you came back from, I, from Hawaii. So. <laughs> when you work from home, this is how you dress every day. I don't, I don't wear pants anymore. <laughs> well, you know, it, uh, that was Love too much information. Right yeah, thank, thank you.
0: you. Um, we're glad you're clothed today. But, you know, it it is it is funny because I feel like there's this pressure of, like, oh, my God, you can get this deal. You don't have to pay um Shipping on your, you know, Keurig cups or whatever, um, or you get a discount. And so, but I haven't bought anything because same reason as you. It's like you buy stuff on Amazon all the time now. It's really not. Well, that's what I would. Are the
4: deals better today? I'm not sure. Right. I feel like they're always kind of the same low price at Amazon. So,
0: so uh, the other day, this made a lot of news. Uh, Jill Biden was giving a speech in, I think, San Antonio. Um, to a Latino civil rights group and uh, made some news because she, I guess, compared the Latino community to breakfast tacos. And really curious people's thoughts on this. And I'll just say, like, clearly somebody wrote this. She was given a speech and probably read it on the plane. Um, But it seems like, you know, with all this discussion over whether Democrats are... Losing some support within the Hispanic community, that it, it probably didn't come at a great time.
3: But Barrett, the Russian Jew, is going to sit this discussion out.
0: <laughs> I'll, <laughs> leave the, <laughs> I'll leave it to the I'll leave yeah,
3: it to the the two Latinos here <laughs> to, to talk about. Do you want to go, learn or
2: Well, want? I mean, I would really love your thoughts, Roy, but I, I'll just chime in. I I agree that it was a disservice by her staff. Um, I mean, she. She should have people on her staff that are looking at every word and every phrase meticulously, especially when you're speaking to, you know, such a large organization, um, like Unidos to, you know, U S, um, uh, formerly what national council for La Raza, one of the largest, you know, Latino groups in the nation. Um, and so for, for, I'm sure it went through many iterations and a bunch of editing processes. And for nobody to say, hmm, breakfast tacos. And <laughs> when you're talking about the diversity of the Latino community, I, that's just a shame that nobody realized that that was not going to be necessarily funny. I don't think she should be you know, canceled or anything by it. But I mean, she needs better staff, bottom line. Yeah,
3: because yeah. This, was a, 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 this was a written. Uh, yeah, you know, This was, it it was, was, was not okay. an ad yeah. lib. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, this was something was some. White staffer wrote, like, hey. "Well, th- that's
4: that's kind of well, that's what I was going to get into because I agree with everything you said, Lorna. I mean, obviously somebody messed up here." Mm-hmm. But it it speaks to i think a larger problem sometimes with campaigns on both sides of the aisle is making sure that there's cultural competency right i mean making sure that and usually that's solved by making sure that you have diverse staff senior staff that's looking at the speeches or drafting them or whatever Mm -hmm. because somebody somewhere in that room should have said maybe let's not compare latinos to tacos i love tacos they're (laughs) one of my favorite things but i'm shouldn't be compared to a taco, right? So, <laughs> so, so I would agree with you. So, unless it's an pastor taco. I've always then compared you
3: to enchiladas. <laughs> you, you Sometimes you're that. spicy. You would do that. You <laughs> would do that.
4: But, but we have to do better on mm-hmm. how we speak to audiences, particularly the Latino community, which is so important now politically, especially in a state like Arizona. And it's not a monolithic community as we've talked about before. I'm sure we'll get into, you know, there's a lot of things to talk about when it comes to President Biden's approval rating. And there's a New York Times poll today that's kind of interesting when it comes to Latino support. Um, But at the end of the day, this comes down to making sure that there's people in the room that understand that there are ways to communicate and ways not to communicate. Well,
0: let's do talk about that because that to me is more interesting than the taco comment is what's really happening among the electorate, especially within the Hispanic community. Obviously, it's a big part of the electorate here in Arizona. So, you know, to me, this whole thing is so fascinating because I, if you had said in 2012, for instance, you know, that somehow Democrats would have a perceived issue uh, with Hispanic voters and that Republicans would be viewed as making inroads, people would have laughed you out of the room because the whole discussion was really the opposite. Do you think, Roy, that that, that this is becoming more of a challenge for Democrats Um, They're clearly still winning the Hispanic vote, but but at least in some of the data, it doesn't look like by the degree that they historically have.
4: I mean, it's something I'm very concerned with. I mean, you look at that New York Times poll today, and Democrats are doing better with white, college-educated voters than Latinos. They do still have a slight edge with Latinos, but we're only talking about a couple of points now, which is very different than the 2020, 2018 results. So there's something going on there. My suspicion is that... Democrats need to speak better about the economy. And obviously we have economic issues like inflation, which I think, you know, is difficult to message around. But in general, I think that's what Latinos, like other you know, parts of the electorate, are, are mostly concerned with. And I think we could do a better job
3: uh, of speaking to them. And can you imagine how much better Republicans would be doing uh, attracting Hispanic voters if they didn't disparage, if a certain segment of the party didn't disparage Latinos and uh, as you know, criminals, drug runners, etc. Um, Can you imagine how much better Republicans would be doing? Because I think they do. Republicans are sort of a fit for Latinos. When you talk about sort of, you know, uh, abortion, for instance, many Latinos are uh, pro-life and, you know, they're religious. And I think that fits into the culture of the Republican Party. Unfortunately, the culture of the Republican Party uh, for a segment is also anti-anything you know darker than daniel Scarponato. well
2: i mean this brings up an issue that has i mean this has been a pet peeve of mine for a very long time for for republicans and democrats because i feel like oftentimes Republicans do not talk to Latino community during a primary, right? They're just so focused on what now is the the Trump element of the party. And then when the Republican primary winner comes out, then all of a sudden they have a Hispanic coalition and this, that, and they're trying to, you know, and it seems disingenuous. And so that's always been an issue of mine because, as you said, there are key issues where there's a lot of alignment. And on the other side, Democrats have seemed to take them for granted. Again, we talk about the Latino community, like you said, it's like a one-size-fits-all, everyone's the same monolith kind of thing, and there's a lot of diversity, and no one's actually paying attention to that, and I think that's where Democrats are losing steam is because, one, there's this assumption they're just going to be with us, and two... Democrats aren't talking about the issues that actually matter to them, like the economy right now and, you know, small businesses. And so the fact that you have these wealthy Caucasian, you know, voters that are, voters that are supporting Democrats, and then you probably have middle, lower class Hispanics that are now looking at the Republican Party differently, should be a huge, you know, wake-up call to the Democrats about what their messaging is publicly.
3: Speaking of sort of the the white people talking to Hispanics, you know, Roy, I, I think your friend Ruben Gallego has really, you know, harped on this the latinx that us whiteies like to call you people um and that just doesn't work for you guys and yet white democrats still refer to your community as latinx it it
0: may have been used in this this speech yeah. that the White House put out yeah. from... Uh, well, there's, a, there's a debate
4: about that, the use of that and, and sort of where it came from. And you're right. I mean, white liberal progressive circles, you see that more often, certainly more often than in my family at home. I mean, I don't think anyone in my family has ever heard of that, quite frankly. <laughs> um, and that's Ruben Gallego's point, right? Yeah, right. So, So some of it, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I do, do think that Democrats have taken the Latino community for granted um, it's not a monolith, you do have to message to them early on. I think even on issues like choice, I, I think the data goes different ways with Latinos. I think younger Latinos tend to actually be pretty pro-choice, I think older Latinos maybe not. Uh, but it goes back to like understanding the electorate and not taking them for granted, and that's been a problem on our side. And as you point out, Barrett, I mean, we're talking about uh, tacos and Jill Biden, I mean, we can talk about burritos and Donald Trump, right, I mean, there's a xenophobia with a certain segment of Republicans that becomes a problem to Republican outreach with Latinos.
0: You know, it's I think that what I've seen is what you're talking about of what um, Democrats do in some cases, Roy, where you mentioned the the economic issues. I mean, that's what's top of mind. And um, and that's for everyone, you know, really. And you see a lot on both sides, but you do see it with Republicans where some of them want to go into the Hispanic community and say, you know, you don't understand that you're really a Republican and that you're really conservative because of X, Y, and Z. And I just don't think that works. I th- I think that y- you need to talk to any voter like an adult and not patronize them and not try to put them in a box. And so it seems like the better formula is to actually... Go into the community, meet with community leaders, meet with actual voters and talk about your agenda and what you want to do and make sure it's one that is inclusive and not offensive to people.
2: I agree with you 100%. And I I would love to get to a point where it's not, this is our strategy for the Latino community. This is our strategy for, you know, um, the Asian community. Just start speaking about the issues because you have to recognize that just because I am a young Latina doesn't mean that I'm going to believe X, Y, and Z. Like, there's no formula for that. And so for whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, to be able to earn my vote, you have to figure out what the issues are that are important to me. And so I think they're just so stuck on this You know, here's this segment of the of, you know, the 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 voter base, here's what I have to say to them and then again it's not you're you're not acknowledging like the differences in the diversity in the community whatsoever. And so I would just love to get to the point where just speak to human beings and make your case and it shouldn't be because you're male, female or whatever your ethnicity is. And
3: I think this election cycle is really a good example of that because right now the economy is number one number two number three right economy inflation jobs you know that is the top of mind to everyone because we are you know today i think it just came out uh inflation year over year is 9.1 percent and i know people's paychecks are not going up 10 percent 9 percent uh from year over year and so republicans are talking about that and democrats are not talking about that as much but that is the issue well, it's interesting. I mean, I agree
4: with you. You know, the, the New York Times poll, political of poll today, too, was interesting. And it shows to me something that's kind of fascinating, a bit of a paradox, where you've got President Biden at like low 30s, right, in approval. The right track, wrong track is showing way, you know, majority on wrong track. Yet the, the same poll, the generic ballot, shows a slight edge to Democrats. And you're like, well, what is this? Right. I mean, how does that make any sense this year? I mean, even I saying this as a Democrat because of historical reasons, because of inflation, because of President Biden's approval, should be a very strong Republican year. I mean, there's no doubt about that. That's what anyone would say. Yet you still have several polls. I mean, the political poll actually had Democrats in the generic congressional ballot higher uh, ahead. So you've got these polls that show this actually might be a close race. Now, why is that the case? And I think it's because we have kind of two different tracks of issues being talked about. One is the economy, which is generally favorable to Republicans right now. The other are other issues, social issues like choice, like gun control, uh, like, you know, fraudulent claims uh, about the election um, and stuff that's being discussed with the January 6th committee. President Trump's, you know, still getting involved in, uh, former President Trump's still getting involved in Republican primaries. So to me, it's like, what wins out when we get to November?
0: Again, it just feels kind of like the Democrats are flapping in the wind and don't have this kind of like, hey, not only do we have this election, but then there's another one right after that and um like it seems like it's if i'm a democrat i'm i'm kind of worried right now
2: well (laughs) well, yeah i mean i think all democrats should be worried right now and i think roy's probably hearing that from a bunch of his friends and clients all the time but i I guess i still just don't understand why they just can't even democrats don't even acknowledge that yes things aren't going well because the the i think i think think
0: kirsten cinema does
2: well Yes. I, well, and I mean, I and I love everything she's doing these days and I'm a Republican defending her. But many of her Democrats friends wouldn't say the same thing. But, you know, there's very few of them who are actually acknowledging that. And I think as a voter, you see that and you're like, what world are you living in? Because what I'm seeing is completely different. So I think the lack of acknowledgement just shows that there's a deep disconnect. And I get I get it if there's politics at play and, or they don't want to be outspoken against the president or they don't or they've seen what's happened to Kirsten and they don't want that to happen to them. Um, but it just really shows that they are not speaking to the main issues that voters care about right now. If you're not acknowledging that there's a problem out there,
4: I mean, it, it, it's a fine line to thread on this, right? I mean, from a messaging perspective, T- to your point about President Biden and whether he runs for reelection, that is a major question, right? Um, and I personally think he probably will run for reelection. Um, I mean, I'm not going to be biased. I represent. I represented President Biden during the presidential campaign, but but I think he probably does. And we might end up in this, in this situation where President Biden is going against President Trump. And the most interesting fact, <laughs> it, well, the most interesting fact from the New York Times poll, which I think it does demonstrate a, the, the sort of current situation, is that despite President Biden being in like 33% approval rating in a head-to-head against pre- President Trump, he w- beats President Trump by three points, right? Mm. So even in that environment, he still beats Trump. So if we're in this rematch in 2024, I think Democrats are in a pretty good spot, because while we do have problems, I think, on messaging and, and factually on, on the economy, because inflation is a fact, right, and we have to deal with that, the Republicans are still contending with this Trump factor. And what does that mean? And if, again, we're going into even these midterms, where the Trump-backed candidate wins the primary in each one of these statewide races, I think all of those races suddenly become toss-ups. Which otherwise should be Republican lean, you know. And that's what is fascinating to me to see. I mean, we don't have a whole lot of primaries, you know, that are that competitive on the Democratic side statewide this year. But the Republicans do. And just as a political observer, I'm very, very interested to see what happens with Governor, Secretary of State, AG, and whether that Trump endorsement matters or not.
3: I think Roy is the one who wrote the email from the State Democratic Party saying, "Hey, Karen Taylor Robson's so great. We love her. We love like her. I, I don't like.
0: I don't like the I, the meddling into other primaries." I, I but saw this. In 2014, I think it was, where Clara McCaskill... Uh, Todd Aiken, Todd Aiken, and uh, in Missouri, and uh, so I, I think you're right that that um, nothing's guaranteed the cycle isn't settled there's still a lot of things that could happen the one thing i do think has changed is that democrats have their primary base has become more complicated than it used to be i felt like democrats used to avoid primaries altogether they could run as these centrists and they and their base just kind of like got it and didn't give them flack what's most shocking to me and this is democrats and republicans is how few people did toss their hat in in some of these races i mean it is kind of startling that we have like basically you know we had five people democrat and republican in the entire state of arizona who were interested in being governor and look at 2014 where you had like 17 republicans and fred deval so um one so there's an interesting story in the new york times about the business lunch and whether that is dead you know people are working from home people are more casual blah 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 and like these power lunches have fallen by the wayside can
3: can i just say when i worked at the arizona department of corrections uh, i got yelled at once for taking my lunch between twelve thirty and one thirty the director told me that his my lunch hours from twelve to one and i was here for his convenience not for mine so when i started Marson media ten years ago i one of um, one of my policies is a two-hour lunch uh, i will not give that up um, Official policy over there uh, well, no yeah i have two official policies at Mars media no tie and two-hour lunches and um, I I will never give up the business lunch. I love it. I love to go to lunch with someone, sit there for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever, and just shoot the breeze, with whether it's a client, a journalist, a friend, you know.
0: You wear pants
3: at those lunches. I'll I, I, I wear. i I'll wear shorts, you know. I mean, <laughs> okay. yeah, you know, and, and they won't let you in without a shirt, unfortunately. So, um, yeah. But, I mean, I, I, I just think that the business lunch is still it, – it's. It, second only maybe to happy hour on Thursdays, mm-hmm. you know, it's still the thing and I'll never give that up.
2: I think it's a generational thing too. I, I'm fine doing, going to lunch. A two hour power lunch, working, lunch, that is just a lot of time and that's a huge commitment. And, I, and, I, and in the past doing that, didn't necessarily see a lot of value out of that. If you have a client coming into town that you're showing around, I totally understand that. But from like just a working perspective, I would much rather, get some takeout, sit in a conference room, hash out whatever you need to do and actually be productive um, versus getting all dressed up, going to a fancy lunch for two hours and that takes up, what, a third of your day, if not. So I just, it's not really my jam. I'm fine with it kind of going, like fading away because it is a time sack, it is. it,
3: It is, but lunch is my favorite Meal because I think you do get to sit there and chat, okay. and you know everyone gets an hour, but you I to digest, yeah, because yeah, it you know, you do an extra little bit, you know, and order a drink. You know, I was at a lunch yesterday at, at Pita Jungle downtown, and I saw a friend of mine there, and she was having a business lunch, and she's drinking a glass of wine, and I am like, that's the way to do it. Yeah, a
0: three martini lunch. Yeah, you know, absolutely.
3: I think it's largely gone
4: away in a lot of ways, or at least been reduced. I mean, I think in the old days, I would have a lunch every day like somewhere for business and then I would have a happy hour if I wanted to every day, you know, at Durant's or something, right? And I, it doesn't happen very often anymore. People have the Zooms or just a call or whatever. Um, other than Barrett inviting me to Durant's, I don't <laughs> really go to Durant's Dur- anymore. Me to
2: Durant's. <laughs> during,
3: during the pandemic, we did this Zoom thing with the in-laws, you know, the whole yeah. family. It was torture because, you know, only one person could talk and, you know, it was torture and, I'll you know, thankfully I, I'll, I'll never do that anymore. Um, but... I still believe that the lunch gives you a chance to. First of all, it's you know you're talking about family, and you're talking about you know best restaurants in Phoenix. You're talking about all kinds of stuff, and some of and then you know you spend ten minutes talking about business, and you, you know go on a tangent, and then another ten minutes talking about business. But you you're not rushed. There's plenty of time, and you're eating decent food. Or, you know, right, so
2: what- I guess, I'm, I guess yeah. I'm just more into like a coffee. Like let's meet for coffee. Let's chat. You know. 30 minutes, maybe 45, you're in and out, you're done. And they can be just as productive, um, and I can show up in my yoga pants yeah, too, Lorna, depending on it. is. <laughs> I'm a people person. <laughs> I guess I'm not. I know.
4: clients
0: paying for Barrett's lunch. Yeah, I think that's ultimately what it seems <laughs> of. What's the best lunch spot in Phoenix? Where do you like to go if you do take the time uh, lorna
2: start oh start with roy gosh i don't know it
4: depends on what you want if you want to see people i think it's the henry quite frankly i mean i think that's where i see most political people
3: the peter jungle downtown at roosevelt the, the what i call a tom horn peter jungle <laughs> we understand. I think the same.
2: Every time I go into the parking yep. garage, right. I think the same yeah, thing. Don't hit anybody. <laughs>
3: no. um, I, 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 you know, that Pita jungle yesterday that I went to, I saw four or five different people, you know, sitting at various tables that I knew, and I'm just like, I think uh, you're working the room. Uh, yeah, right. You yeah. 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 get all this. That's yeah. why yeah. you like. You get room, all I your I feel work I done, feel done. Like uh, for I the feel like day. A maybe you should have run know. for governor.
2: <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> I would say I like to be on the healthier side, and Roy see me there multiple times. True Food is the place I like, that I like to go. you've gone to True Food, yeah. it's a
4: great uh, place.
3: By the way, one of my favorite restaurants in Arizona of all time is Moto, which is just down the street from your office. Uh, 16th and uh, Glendale. 16th Street in Glendale. Sushi, Asian fusion. That's Ring. good.
0: Sometimes I like to go to Burger King. Is that driving. <laughs> 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 all right, guys. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks this for having was us. was a fascinating conversation, you. and good to see everybody. Cheers. Hey, it's Scarp. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please subscribe to listen to all of our new episodes.